only thing we have to fear is in war. Fear there is no substitute for victory. Let us never negotiate out of fear. We stand undivided, forever united, fighting hand in hand for the liberty we burn, for glory and honor for our sons and daughters, ever mindful of the lessons we've learned. Let the torch of freedom burn. You found your way to the intersection of faith and politics. This is Wall Builders Live with David Barton and Rick Green. You've joined us in a four-part series from Constitutional Live. It's actually Section 6 out of Constitutional Live. That's the chapter where we cover the presidency, and we talk about how to get the presidency back into its proper constitutional powers. Today is the conclusion. It's a four-part series, so if you missed the first three parts earlier this week, they're all available for you right now at Wall Builders Live. We're going to pick up right where we left off yesterday. If you would like to learn more about the entire Constitutional Live DVD program and workbook, it can be found at constitutionallive.com. We're going to pick up where we left off yesterday. Here's Constitutional Live where we're talking about the presidency. Over time, beginning with Washington, uh, you started having executive orders from the president to make sure that the laws were faithfully executed. That's perfectly fine as long as the executive order is is executing a law that Congress has actually passed, according to the Constitution. So if you've got a a law that's been passed by the House and Senate, signed by the President, or allowed to go into law uh, by the President without being signed, not overturned by the court, this is a legitimate law. It creates some agency or some process. The President has to see that that's executed faithfully. Sometimes they have to issue orders about how it's going to be executed. As long as that is within the purview of how the law was passed, it's perfectly fine. So presidents have always done executive orders. I, I think Reagan did, I think it was 280 or something like that. Bush had about 300. Um, I, I don't know what the number is on Obama. They've all done it. The difference is when a president issues an executive order that is not a law passed by Congress. That's a problem. Or when the president issues an executive order that's the exact opposite of what Congress passed as a law. Or let's say that Congress is considering a law. And last year they said no to that law. And this year they might be having it work its way through the committee process. If the the president just says, well, I don't care, they're taking too long, I'm going to do it by executive order, that is not the proper constitutional function of an executive order. It's an unconstitutional executive order. Many presidents have, have ventured way too far on this issue. Congress needs to stand up and say, we don't agree with that executive order. Here's a law actually reversing it. So these are, these are battles that, again, you've got to have people that are willing to say the Constitution is more important than one party or another party's political agenda. It's always got to be the process has to be defended. The concepts these guys put in place have to be defended. This is David Barton with another moment from America's history. The key to a self-governing nation is self-governing people. And the key to personal self-government is to live by the standards in God's Word. If someone cannot control himself by those standards, then our Constitution certainly will be unable to restrain him. Understanding this, John Adams declared, We have no government, armed with power, capable of contending with human passions unbridled by morality and religion. Greed, 
ambition, revenge, or seduction would break the strongest cords of our Constitution as a whale goes through a net. Our Constitution was made only for a moral and religious people. It is wholly inadequate to the government of any other. John Adams believed that successful government rested not upon our great Constitution, but rather upon moral and religious people. For more information on God's hand in American history, contact Wall Builders at 1-800-8-REBUILD. So we're doing the most important part right now. We're getting educated. Now it's our job to go back and help get them educated and choose leaders that will take that oath seriously. All right, we covered a lot of ground there on the presidency, but there was a question about oaths, and it, it reminded me, you actually do a whole talk on mm -hmm. God and the Constitution. There's a CD of that that's going to be included in the, in the package here, so folks can go dive in deep there, and you cover oaths in that a little bit, but give us a little bit of taste of that. How important are those oaths, and how do you get people to uphold them? Yeah, the, the way the Founding Fathers believed that you upheld oaths was you were more scared of God than of, of not following your oath. Because if you take an oath of office, nobody really knows if you lied or not, but he does. So that's not about you. If I take my oath, it's not so you hold me accountable to that oath. It's, it's because I know God's going to. God, uh, you, you don't need it. But I'm agreeing with you to give you permission that you nail me if I lie. Yeah. And so what it does is, it, as they said in another document, it binds the conscience in the most strongest ties. It's, it's what gets you up here and says, you know what, I promise God I, I, I can't bring more. You know, yeah. I, I might can do a lot of things with the people and turn my back on them and they wouldn't know I was doing it and whatever. And, and because so, a lot of that stuff does happen behind the scenes. I mean, does. if you're going to hold a public servant accountable, there's going to be times where there's, you know, committee you meetings you don't know what's happening, exactly back deal right. rooms. It's just part of the process. It's going to happen. That's right. You want that person to be thinking about that oath and that conscience. And you will find that in those early state constitutions, including the one written by Ben Franklin, 1776 Constitution of Pennsylvania, it said, you, we don't want you holding office unless you believe there's a future state of rewards and punishments. So if you didn't have faith in an oath, it, I mean, if you didn't think that an oath would hold you accountable, if you didn't believe in God, we don't want you there because we can't hold you accountable in that back now, it, it, deal. It, Rick, if you say, I swear before God I'll do this, you just put a burden on yourself that says, I swore before God. Yeah. But if you say, oh, yeah, I'm going to do that, I have to trust in your goodness. And maybe you're a good guy, maybe you're not. And so for some political officials, maybe, they're, maybe they are, maybe they aren't. But by doing the oath the way they did it, and see, there are books out there that are called like the Godless Constitution, suggesting that this is all secular stuff. Yeah. You can only say that if you know nothing about history and nothing about what the founders did. So let's take the oath clauses, because there are five oath clauses in the Constitution. Oaths are a big deal to the Founding Fathers. And from their standpoint, there is no such thing as a secular oath. Let me just run you through some of their, their quotes. Okay. James Madison said that an oath is the strongest of religious ties. I'm sorry, secular people may not like that. Uh, oath is a religious tie. Uh, you have here John Adams. John Adams says, oaths in this country are as yet universally considered as sacred obligations. Mm. It's a religious obligation. You have James Iredale. He's a ratifier of the Constitution. He was put on the U.S. Supreme Court by George Washington. And so here's this Supreme Court justice. Here's what he said. He says, according to the modern definition, which modern definition is 1788 back then, <laughs> yeah. according to the modern definition of oath, it is considered, and by the way, this was done at the ratification convention of the U.S. Constitution in North Carolina. So at the ratification convention, he's talking about the oath clauses. 
And this is according to the modern definition right now today of an oath, 1788, when we ratify this thing. He's in the middle of the debate. He's this in the isn't some it. random letter no. later. This is in the middle no. of the debate. Okay. He says, it is considered a, quote, solemn appeal to the supreme being for the truth of what is said by a person who believes in the existence of a supreme being in a future state of rewards and punishments. An oath is... God, I'm saying this, and I know I'm going to have to account to you someday, and I'm cognizant of the fact I'm going to have to account to you, so I'm giving you my word. So if you don't believe in God, then that part doesn't hold any weight. That well, doesn't then, mean then it's on the goodness of man, and, yeah. and uh, there's not a whole lot in me that says the goodness of man is great. Yeah. Just look back across the 20th century and look at about 150 million lives that were lost because Stalin wasn't good, and Hitler wasn't good, and Tojo yeah. wasn't good, and, and Pol Pot wasn't good. and Goodness of man, if the goodness of man worked, we wouldn't have a prison anywhere in America yeah. because it doesn't, you know, and, and that's what the founders knew. So that's James Iredell. You have here Oliver Wolcott, who's a signer of the Declaration. Oliver Wolcott was the governor of Connecticut. Uh, this is what he says. He said, the Constitution enjoins an oath upon the officers of the United States. This is a direct appeal to that God who is the avenger of perjury. Such an appeal to him is a full acknowledgment of his being in providence. Now, he's talking the oaths in the Constitution. Mm. He said the oaths in the Constitution, they are a direct appeal to God who's the avenger of perjury. If so how could it be a godless Constitution if these guys are saying right there out of the Constitution? Five, it's a God, yeah. five oath clauses. Wow. They're all five religious clauses. So continue. John Quincy Adams. Uh, and by the way, John Quincy Adams, kind of fun thing to, to know about the advice and consent clause in the Constitution, which John Quincy Adams was appointed to the U.S. Supreme Court and confirmed. Now, he wasn't in the country when it happened. They didn't have a hearing on him. But the advice and consent, the Senate knew him. They knew his capabilities. They knew that he is a great guy to have on the court. Uh, but he turned it down because at the time he was negotiating the Treaty of Ghent to end the War of 1812. Wow. So to, to come home and be a Supreme Court justice, he's going to have to leave the country in a lurch because he's trying to bring an end to the War of 1812. He's putting the country so ahead of his own. He's putting the country ahead of his own ambitions. Yeah. And so he is nominated and confirmed the Supreme Court. So he is another legal guy, a very bright mind. This is what he said. He said, the Constitution had provided that all the public functionaries of the Union, not only the general or the federal government, but also the state governments, should be under oath or affirmation for support. We take an oath to uphold the Constitution of the United States, even if you're a state official. You take an oath to uphold the Constitution. It says, the homage of religious faith was thus superadded to all the obligations of temporal law to give it strength. So he's saying, we've just tied religion to the Constitution to give it strength. This, this is what drives the oath clause home, is we've made it between you and God. Mm. And that's what, so here, here's some more. We're the, just going to keep piling on. Before you do this one, so that, I mean, that's just a reminder to me of the difference between the whole, you know, French Revolution, liberty you without bet. God, and our, our, you know, liberty with God. It's almost like it's the, you know, religion and faith, it, it, it's the glue that's really making all this work, that these pieces wouldn't work so well. If you didn't have religion as a part of it, even down to a public servant to a public upholding servant. Their, their oath. Well, you know, you and I, if we go to the moon and breathe there, we'll die because that's not our atmosphere. And if you take a secular atmosphere of the Constitution, it will die because mm. that was not its atmosphere. Yeah. It was birthed and created in a religious atmosphere. And if you try to take that atmosphere, if you take that air out of the room, it will suffocate. It will die because it's not made that way. And here's another good example. Rufus King is a signer of the Constitution. And he said, the oath, in the oath which our laws prescribe, we appeal to the supreme being to deal with us hereafter to, as we observe, the obligations of our oaths. 
He said, the pagan world were and are without the mighty influence of this principle which is proclaimed in the Christian system. So here again, the difference between our formula and other formulas, the reason it's worked so well is because in this Christian system we have this mighty influence of accountability to God for those oaths. That's and that's huge. And that's why in the Declaration, again, of the six principles, number one is there is a Creator. Yeah. And He created you, therefore He can tell you what to do, and you'll have to answer to your Creator someday. Mm. So that was the belief. Here's another one, John Witherspoon. Now John Witherspoon, signer of the Declaration, he trained a number of the Founding Fathers as president of Princeton University. This is what he said. He says, an oath is an appeal to God, the searcher parts for the truth of what we say and always supposes a calling down of His judgment on us if we lie. Mm. He says, persons entering on public office are obliged to make oath that they will faithfully execute their trust. He said in vows, there's no party but God and the person himself who makes the vow. When you take an oath, it's between two people. It's between you and God. It's not between you and the, the, the nation or anything. It's between you and God. That's what the oath is. He continues, an oath therefore implies a belief in God and His providence and is indeed an act of worship. Wow. You mean the Constitution has five acts of worship? Yeah, it's got a lot more than that. But this is what I'm telling you. These are the guys that, that did this and helped write this. One final example, George Washington in his farewell address, this is what he says. He says, where's the security for property, for reputation, for life, of the sense of religious obligation to our oaths? If our oaths become secular and you don't feel like you're counting to God. There's no guarantee there. There's no guarantee. Hey guys, we want to let you know about a new resource we have at Wall Builders called The American Story. For so many years, people have asked us to do a history book to help tell more of the story that's just not known or not told today. And we would say very providentially, in the midst of all of the new attacks coming out against America, whether it be from things like the 1619 Project that say America is evil and everything in America was built off slavery, which is certainly not true, or things like even the Black Lives Matter movement, the organization itself, not not the statement Black Lives Matter, but the organization that says we're against everything that America was built on and this is part of the Marxist ideology. There's so many things attacking America. Well, is America worth defending? What is a true story of America? We actually have written and told that story. Starting with Christopher Columbus, going roughly through Abraham Lincoln, we tell the story of America not as the story of a perfect nation or a perfect people, but the story of how God used these imperfect people and did great things through this nation. It's a story you want to check out. Wallbuilders.com, The American Story. Now, how do you get people to observe their oaths? You get them to be cognizant of God. You get them to be aware that they will answer to God. And if they lie to us, the people, they're going to have to deal with God. And this is not one person here. You've gone through the Father of the Country. You've got signers of the Constitution, okay. signers of the Declaration. I mean, all these huge founding I, I fathers. I give you all these legal books. I don't even need yeah. signers. I'll, I'll give the commentaries they wrote afterwards. I'll, give you, I'll, I'll go through their legal I'll go through the court's legal rulings. I mean, this is not like I've concocted something here. This is all over their documents. And this comes straight to that Exodus 18.21. They've got to fear God. Yep. One of those key elements. If they fear God. Able men such as fear God. Yeah. Not one or the other. You need able men who fear God. Yeah, then that oath will mean something. Then the oath Which means, means when we're choosing, we need to be thinking about the oaths that this person is the oath this person is going to take for their office. It doesn't mean anything unless we choose people that believe in God and, and that so, actually want to be held accountable. And you better choose people that way because 99% of what they do, as you pointed out, is done in private. Yeah. You know, if you think of 10 to 13,000 bills generally every year that are introduced in the federal Congress, 
You can probably name five. Is yeah, it, you, do, you don't know half of what's going on. So, well, well, let's take a presidential example in, in terms of what a president, since this is Article 2 here in this particular section. So some of the things a president does that absolutely. most How about some of those appointments? We had a question on exceptions that don't have to go through the Senate. That's right. So this is going to be an action where nobody's going to be able to hold the president accountable right. to. So the, the founders thought there were some things that you should do that for yeah. and, and have some of those exceptions. But again, that's thinking you're going to have a president in place who will that's follow, going to uphold that that's oath. That's right. Yeah. The, the, the fact that a recess appointment now means you're gone for three days. On And by the way, yeah. they went for Christmas and New Year break. And so I'm taking a federal holiday as designated by law, and that's a recess? Yeah. And you're going to do national labor? And I'm going to use it to push somebody through? I'm going to yeah. push some. Now, why did the founding fathers do it so that there would be two branches involved in presidential appointments? And by the way, the question was asked, you know, Congress just passed this law that excluded certain things. And as a general principle, we're, we don't want that. We want them being yeah. accountable. But part of what happens, the reason the, the founding fathers did that was also included in presidential appointments until the 1960s was postmasters. Now, postmasters are not going to make or break the United States of America. That's an administrative office. They don't exercise any power. Uh, they, you know, they may be inefficient and incompetent, but that doesn't break the, the nation. Yeah, yeah. So it's not an abuse of power. So in the 60s, uh, Congress passed a law that says, hey, postmasters, let's not have Senate confirmation on them anymore. I mean, that's not a danger. And so what happens is with, with now more than 1,000 agencies, and some say as many as 1,300 federal agencies, the president has thousands of appointments to make, and some of them are just clerical. You know, some of them, they don't have decision-making power. They just, they have to execute their duty. Then that's not really the people you want to confirm. But that's not what happened in these other recess appointments where they're trying to cram people through that the Senate opposed already. Right, those were appointments that really do have a major impact, should not have been snuck that's through right. in recess appointments. And so when you look at that, that appointment clause with the advice and consent of the Senate, how come we just don't let the president pick his own guys? And the founding fathers answered that. Matter of fact, if you go to the Federalist Papers, the Federalist Papers, that is their commentary on, on the Constitution. This is written to help ratify the Constitution. So they're looking ahead to they're how this thing's going to work. And the, the three authors there, you got Madison and John Jay and Alexander Hamilton. Now, here's what they said about why you have two branches involved in a nomination. When you have a nomination that you want somebody to confirm that, here's what it explained. It says... It would be an excellent check upon a spirit of favoritism in the president and would tend greatly to preventing the appointment of unfit characters. Hmm. If he can put in whoever he wants and nobody can say, whoa, yeah. that guy's incompetent. You know, that guy has whatever. That guy's got a criminal record. If you can't have somebody to be a check and balance, then he can run through everybody that is a supporter. He's appointing his cousin, his brother-in-law. You betcha. You know, nepotism yeah. comes in. He says, he would be both ashamed and afraid to bring forth from the most distinguished and lucrative stations candidates who had no other merit than that of coming from the same state to which he particularly belonged mm. or being some other way personally allied to him or possessing the necessary insignificance and pliancy to render them ubiquitous instruments of his pleasure. That is just his political hacks. I'm rewarding yeah. my guys, putting them in office, and, and these are my guys, and they're going to care. That's why you have the second branch involved. But that only works because I, I, we still see some of this yep. because the Senate's not doing its job. It's Senate's back not to those constitutional arms. You know, if the president's allowed to just put anybody in that they want, then the Senate's falling down on their duty. Well, the Senate says, you know, the president won the election. With that, he, he wins yeah, the Yeah, I've heard that, yeah. No, you didn't take an oath to uphold the election. You took an oath to uphold the Constitution. The Constitution. That's right. And that's a whole. And unless you, again, worry that you're going to have to answer to God for what you do, then why not just rubber stamp anything he yeah, wants? Yeah. But if you have to answer to God for upholding the Constitution and protecting 
the liberties of the people, now you're a whole lot more independent from anything that any party wants or anything that any, any person wants. Here's another one. Roger Sherman, one of the, the, the six guys who signed the Declaration and the Constitution. Actually, he's called a master builder of the Constitution. He's the guy who came up with the bicameral system, the House and Senate, which then we used in the Electoral College. And so he, he's got now, so now, when you things. use that phrase master builder, does that mean that they, they came up with major components? Is that Well, master what? builder is you had 55 guys there, and some were yeah. a whole lot more active than others. Okay. And some... You know, we often call James Madison the father of the Constitution, which is kind of nonsense because he has a letter said, you can't call me that. He, he said, said, don't call me he that. Said, he, <laughs> well, they said, they said that he more than any other had, and he said, no, no, no. He said there were a lot of minds. And so what, what historians used to say was that you have Roger Sherman, you have George Washington, you have Charles Pinckney, and actually Charles Pinckney nobody talks about. The Constitution looked closest to all the things he proposed. He's the guy who got it wow. most right for what the people chose. But you have you have James Madison, George you see Washington. His, you see his fingerprints you in see really his more finger- than anybody else's. And, and Sherman's one of the guys. You yeah. can see his fingerprints in the electoral college and the bicameral system. Others. I mean, he had what he came up with. The other guys liked, and, and they included a lot of it. So that's why we call him master bill. Now we call. We call Madison now the father of the Constitution because in 1946 they discovered an unknown manuscript of Madison where he went through and trashed religion. All the things he'd done as president and in the first Congress, he said, you know, I, I'm the guy who voted for the appointment of chaplains in Congress. I really wish I hadn't done that. I wow. wish we didn't have chaplains. So he reversed. He reversed. Yeah. And, but it was a private, it was private, it was secret. Nobody, ever, no founder ever read it. Nobody knew it was there until they found it in 1946. And suddenly he's the father of the Constitution. Oh, now yeah. they want him because now he's, he's saying guy. things later yeah. against what. Yeah, and, so, and, and those were things he did out of office, private. Oh, yeah. That, instead this was of paying attention later, to what he did as a representative of the people. His actions were very clear. I mean, as president of the United States, I think he had eight or 10 or 12 proclamations calling for days of prayer and fasting, yeah. and he says later in old life, I wish I hadn't done any of that. And so he goes through and just repudiates himself. I mean, mm, he's yeah. just double-minded in this stuff. And, and so rather than looking at what he did, and who cares what he believed individually, because the other founding fathers set up laws and stuff that, that were different, now we say his personal opinion later in life that no one ever knew Because it fits had. their agenda. That's, That's exactly the reason. That's yeah. exactly it. Have you ever wanted to learn more about the United States Constitution, but just felt like, man, the classes are boring, or it's just that old language from 200 years ago, or I don't know where to start? People want to know, but it gets frustrating because you don't know where to look for truth about the Constitution either. Well, we've got a special program for you available now called Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green, and it's actually a teaching done on the Constitution at Independence Hall in the very room where the Constitution was framed. We take you both to Philadelphia, the Cradle of Liberty and Independence Hall, and to the Wall Builders Library, where David Barton brings the history to life to teach the original intent of our founding fathers. We call it the Quick Start Guide to the Constitution because in just a few hours through these videos, you will learn the Citizen's Guide to America's Constitution. You'll learn what you need to do to help save our constitutional republic. It's fun, it's entertaining, and it's going to inspire you to do your part to preserve freedom for future generations. It's called Constitution Alive with David Barton and Rick Green. You can find out more information on our website now at wallbuilders.com. Madison did have an impact on the Constitution, no question, but he's one of many. 
Well, you take well, one. That's why I love your approach. You step back and you say, we're going to look at all these guys. That's right. We're going to learn from all of them. And here's another one that most people hadn't heard of, and he's a master builder. He's a master builder. And so in talking about why it is that the Senate advises consensus of president or nominees, this is what he said. He said that the president alone was invested with the power of appointing all officers and was left to select a council for himself, he'd be liable to be deceived by flatterers and pretenders to patriotism who would now have no other motive but their own profit and their own self-seeking gain. He says, we can help recognize and flush out some of these guys that are, that are just mere people looking for their own profit. I, you know, I want to build my resume. I want he said, we can help make sure you get people in there who are willing to serve. Because there's accountability there's from accountability. another branch. It's not just one person doing it on their and own. And then finally, Justice Joseph Story, who's put on the court by President James Madison, and he did the famous commentary on the Constitution. If people want to buy a good book on the Constitution, you can buy that reprinted 1833 commentaries on the Constitution. There is one that's called The Familiar Exposition of the Constitution. It's one volume. His actual work was three volumes long. And it's, it's very thorough. It goes through every clause of the Constitution, and it's, it's great. But in his commentaries on the Constitution, this is what he said. He says, the consciousness of this check will make the president more circumspect and deliberate in his nomination for office. If he knows that he has to get him by somebody who's watching, he's going to be a lot better in his choices. Yeah. And that's why we have the advice and consent clause. And so the question about, you know, what happens when Congress takes some out, well, if they're postmasters and that kind of stuff, you don't worry about it. But the reason they were put there in the first place is to make sure we don't get bad folks heading government agencies. Accountability. You know, we talked a lot about uh, abuses of power. We talked about things that get done in private, so you want to have people you can trust. It's time to talk about the courts because we see a lot of things being yeah. done in terms of no accountability with the courts. And in our next chapter, we're going to dive into the courts in Article 3. We're going to learn about some myths of the judiciary. But before you go to that section, be sure and watch that little clip with Brad Stein, where we talk about the Electoral College, the World Series of Politics, when we come back here on Constitutional Live with David Barton and Rick Green. Hope you enjoyed this four-part series on the presidency out of Constitutional Live with David Barton and Rick Green. That's just one section out of 11 in the entire Constitutional Live program, which is on DVD and a workbook. You can find out more at constitutionallive.com. But if for some reason you tune in today for the first time and you missed the first three parts of this particular section on the presidency, that's all available to you right now. You can go to wallbuilderslive.com. All the links are free. Get on there, listen to it, share it with your friends and family. Let's do our part in restoring this constitutional republic. You've been listening to Wall Builders Live. Stand undivided